Hello, Lucky Paper Radio listeners. This is Andy, and you guessed it. If you listened to last week's intro and heard that my wife got COVID, I, in fact, also got COVID, as is to be expected. So we could not go on our vacation as planned, but because I was sick, I still couldn't record with Anthony in person, so we are still coming at you with this special bonus episode, which is friends of the show, Parker Lamascus and Jason Waddell, talking about a game that they love that is not magic, Slay the Spire. Slay the Spire is a cool single-player strategy card game where you basically play through these series of randomized battles and build and improve your deck as you fight through. And I think that Jason and Parker have some really interesting insights on it that will be especially relevant to you if you also enjoy Slay the Spire. But even if you don't, it's still some evergreen game design conversation for you. I feel so, 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 so lucky and grateful to have amazing friends like Parker and Jason to make a great episode like this for us while we take a week off. So a huge, huge thank you to them. Thank you, Parker and Jason. Jason has been streaming Slay the Spire on his Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash Riptide Lab. I'll put that in the show notes. And we'll be back to you next week with a regular episode of Lucky Paper Radio. And welcome to a special episode of Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your temporary host, Parker Lamascus, here with the owner of Riptide Lab Cube Forum, the inventor of Grid Draft, Jason Waddell. Hello, good to be back. It's my second appearance on Lucky Paper Radio. I've now been on with three of the four members of Lucky Paper. So waiting on the Tjornan. Um, how do you pronounce that? You know... I think Jet would appreciate it, like if we tried to mangle it as much as possible. So, uh, creative interpret, yeah, <laughs> creative interpretations are welcome. Okay, so the reason Andy and Anthony aren't with us today is that we're going to be discussing Slay the Spire, which is a game that they have not played. Magic is such a complex game with this like interlocking ecosystem of different structures that's just hard to talk about in the abstract. It's so complex that sometimes the best way to understand magic is through talking about a different game. And that's what we'll be doing today. So Jason and I have both been playing a lot of Slay the Spire. And uh, Jason, why don't you define or describe Slay the Spire to somebody who's never heard of it, but maybe has played magic and has that background? Uh, I'm going to start with a different game as a reference, okay. actually. So Slave Spire is kind of built on the phenomenon known as Dominion, which is a card game that came out, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago now and kind of forced uh, a million spinoffs. So Dominion is a deck building game where you start off with a very small deck, like a 10 card deck. Um, and each turn you draw a fresh five card hand. Um, you're limited in terms of how many action cards you can play. You can only play one action card per turn. Of course, there are action cards that generate more actions for you to use. So you can chain these together in certain ways. Um, and then after you've played out, uh, your hand at the end of your turn, you discard your whole hand. And the way that the game works is that you buy cards from kind of a communal pool and you want to be the first one out of everyone you're playing against 
to accumulate uh, the most victory points. And Dominion kind of was known with the reputation of being called a multiplayer solitaire game, where theoretically there were like a little bit of interaction pieces you could do, um, but mostly it was about who could build the most efficient engine uh, relative mm-hmm. to their opponents. And they're all kind of using the same resources with some RNG. And Slay the Spire takes that concept and turns it into a uh, kind of like a dungeon crawling deck builder. It's a single player game, so we don't have to worry about it being multiplayer solitaire. It is just straight solitaire. You get a five card hand every turn and you have three energy, three mana, however you want to put it, uh, to spend on cards. All the cards in this game have a energy cost. And you are fighting against increasingly difficult monsters. And the idea is that the um, the enemies you take on are growing in power exponentially. And you need to uh, make a deck that grows in power exponentially as well to stay ahead of the curve. Yeah. And it's also uh, what's known as, I think, a roguelike game in that like, if you fail a battle and your health gets dropped to zero, it's game over. There's no extra lives. There's no checkpoints. So you can't reload the save. It's just over and you have to start a new run with a quasi-randomly generated dungeon and quasi-random rewards as well. So that's part of the appeal for me is that it's really difficult. And every time you play, like it's never the same game twice. It's never the same deck twice. Yeah, so the game has um, four different characters. And like you say, it's a roguelike. So most roguelikes are built um, with kind of this philosophy that they're meant to be very challenging, very skill rewarding, um, but also very replayable. Uh, And so one of the interesting things about Slave Aspire is that there are four different characters you can choose from. And each one, if you will, is kind of its own isolated environment uh, for the most part uh, one character's cards are not accessible to any of the other characters so each almost char- like a color of magic or something yeah and each character is kind of designed um as its own cube if you will and that there mm-hmm. there's multiple like different uh things each character can do uh archetypes if you will but i think that's maybe like a, a bit of a narrow way to think about it and the game is designed in such a way that there's really interesting overlaps and intersections and also kind of like anti-synergies at times between um the different cards in the card pool and each character's card pool is only like 70 cards and like 20 of those are rare so it's more or less like 50 cards that you're using over and over um Mm -hmm. which is not a huge card pool what they do is kind of make sure that it's the right cards. Like each um, card in the design is very purposeful and like what it's doing for the character, how it relates to the different strategies it can do. And uh, the game really gets a lot of mileage out of having the right cards over having just a bunch of different cards for the sake of variety. Yeah, that's a great point. So... You, you take damage. At the start of every turn, you see how much uh, damage an enemy intends to inflict upon you. 
and mm-hmm. you'll have in a typical hand a number of attack cards, a number of block cards, and damage that you take is permanent. So, like if you take, um, if you start a battle at fifty health and you take ten damage, you'll start the next battle at forty health. Um, so there's kind of this tension between how much do I want to block uh, versus attack. And when you first start playing the game, uh, maybe you simplify it in your mind to I want to block as much all the damage I can that's incoming, and then um, you know attack with the rest of my mana that I have. Uh, but very quickly they teach you that there are enemies that scale over the course of a battle. So yep. One of the first enemies you face will deal, um, you know, six damage the first turn and then 11 the next and then 16 the next. So uh, you can't really take full damage mitigation as a strategy turn by turn. You have to kind of like weigh those things. So I guess one additional point of like clarification would be that for the most part, your cards interact with a couple of resources in the game. They sometimes attack your enemies and that's how you defeat them and progress in the dungeon or conversely they create block which protects your own health from your enemies attacks or i guess the third major resource that it interacts with is it draws or scries or discards cards so in the same way that we think about card advantage in magic i think an analogous concept exists in slay the spire now, now you sent me a document um, before this podcast on your your thoughts of this game, uh, which you, you've you've played a lot, but also not a lot. How, how much have you played this yeah. game? Suffice it to say, I'm much worse than Jason. I have uh, 40 hours logged in this game, and I've I've beaten it a couple times on the easy difficulty levels. But I think Jason is much more of an expert here than I am. Yeah, I, I've played it on a couple different... I, I've played it on Xbox and on Steam. I don't know what the total hour count is, but I've beaten it on the hardest difficulty with every character, so... Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm very much, like, at the beginning of my journey as a Slay the Spire spike, whereas you, Jason, are, like, way up there in the spikeness of this game. Yeah, it goes pretty deep. Some people are extremely talented at this game. I've I've noticed that um for the most part of of like cubers that I've talked to, people have not been that good at Spire. Um mm. and I remember someone in the Riptide community saying that uh they they never beat the heart because they they build their decks too fair. Which I think is an absurd concept in a single player environment. Yeah, because, like, why not combo off or why not build a storm deck if you can? Yeah, I mean, so uh, I guess I, I've been a huge proponent um, within Cube of like uh, promoting very fair, interactive. Um, environments and you know my my cube was uh certainly not the first but one of the earliest to really like cut out a ton of right um kind of these like unfair feel bad cards 
without there being like storm, a strict yeah. like I'm not I'm not calling my cube like low power or peasant on common uncommon any of that. I just I just want the cards that are like fun to play with and against. And yeah. um Inspire and another uh roguelike deck builders, it's the total opposite. I try to storm off as much as possible, as frequently as possible, even when it's not um really the ideal approach to whatever run I'm in. Uh, so sometimes that's to my detriment. But I, I think a lot of what you know from magic, you kind of have to recontextualize Inspire. Um, right. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you... So in, in the document, can you recall, you listed three basic resources in the game. Yeah. Um, so I think the three basic resources are cards health and mana and you have to manage those in order to beat an enemy and progress in the game this is a good starting point uh i I would add a couple to this list the first being floors uh if you want to beat the heart which is on floor 55 you have 55 floors to get as strong as possible um Mm. so the floors are your resources for increasing the strength of your deck and there was a discussion in the riptide we have a slave aspire discord channel or like sub channel and somebody posted a screenshot of there's a fight in the game where you encounter these thieves and uh there's always two options you can either pay them all of your money to skip the fight or you can fight them and if you fight them, you are guaranteed a relic, which is called a red mask. It makes your enemies weak on turn one uh, of every fight. Uh, yeah. You get gold from the fight. You get a card reward screen, which they show you three cards. You can select one of them to go into your deck or skip. Um, this person at the time uh, where they screenshotted it had one gold, which is a very low amount to have. And so they had the option, pay one gold to skip this fight. And they posted in the thread uh, in the Discord, one gold to skip a fight, that's a deal that's too good to pass up. Um, but it's one gold to skip a floor. It's it's one of right. your, it's like 2% of your run, like one of the 50 floors that you are skipping uh, and it's one of the most rewarding floors that you, you get a relic for a relatively easy fight. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I think if you contextualize like a floor as a resource, it changes how you think about the game in a way that might be very unfamiliar to magic players. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know that it's like, well, okay, I'll admit it's certainly new to me and uh, it'll probably level up my Slay the Spire game. But I do think Magic players have um, something that's similar in the concept of draft picks. Like you have 45 uh, decisions during a draft usually that will lead you down a path to the best deck. And I think Magic players are often reluctant to make short-term sacrifices in their draft pick to open up 
a path to a better deck overall. So like picking a piece of fixing early will open up multiple decks, but some people might be reluctant to pick a land early. The the difference being that you cannot um, die during the draft. The other resource I would list, um, and this is a big issue and another roguelike deck builder that I've been um, doing some design and development on is time, like your your human time. Like It's a single-player game. In theory, you could spend, I don't know, like 100 hours, 1,000 hours on a single run. Um, you could simulate draw probabilities or all, all sorts of things that will give you a slight edge uh in your run and uh, do, do you know how long your average like winning run is i don't tend to time myself i just uh start a run and then lose myself I've, I've gotten it down to about an hour when i started my winning runs were like two and a half to three hours another thing you put in this document is that the the resource system is very different from magic uh and magic you you have the standard draw one card a turn play one land a turn and that's like your your primary constraint yeah so inspire by contrast to magic you are granted five cards a turn and you are granted three mana a turn like no matter what you do and sometimes you can increase your mana intake or your cards and and get even more every turn so in that sense cards like are much less the value of the text draw a card is much less powerful in Slay the Spire versus Magic. So you can often find these like zero mana cantrips in Slay the Spire. And in Magic, that would be broken because you can only draw one card a turn and it will double the amount of cards you see. In Slay the Spire, it's adding one to the five you've already seen. So that text is much less relevant. On the other hand, something like Gaining Life which tends to kind of suck in magic, generally speaking, is not so bad in Slay the Spire because you have to manage your health over 55 floors. So the way that the starting resources are allocated or the way that the loop of the game proceeds is, is what determines which cards are powerful and why. Yeah. So there's a, a card in uh, Spire, which is literally uh, Ancestral Recall. It's one energy yeah. to draw three cards. And it's, it's not bad, but it, it's, not, it's not like the, the power nine of the game by any means. I, I think in these deck building games, the main thing that designers of them have to be aware of is the ease of going infinite. Um, yeah. And so you talked about the resources of the mana that you have and the, um, the card draw that you have. And a, a lot of this, uh, the beauty of Slave Spire is that, um, your character gets stronger through like layered synergies and interactions. So you'll, you'll have some basic effect that, I don't know, on floor five, and I'll, I'll get into a concrete example of this in a minute, um, does something kind of like minimal. And then by floor 50, uh, the interactions it has with the other things in your deck um, kind of blossom into something uh, exponentially powerful. Yeah. 
the risk you have uh, with the card pool a little bit is that if you make card draw and energy generation very strong, um, I don't know, like if you have a bunch of like draw fives and gain three energy, is that you can just fill your deck with those and then go infinite. Um, right. So I, I feel like Spire has like pretty like reined in uh, those things. You you can go infinite, but it's like something you have to work towards. Um, but the main designing principle behind Spire is that you get stronger through synergy, um, synergy with your cards and synergy with your relics, and. Uh, we talked a bit before we started recording. Uh, I wanted to bring up a card, Reckless Charge. Um, this is a zero mana attack. It deals seven damage. And when you play it, you shuffle a dazed into your draw pile. Um, a dazed is a status card, uh, basically a dead card that, um, in magic terms, exiles itself at the end of your turn when you have it in your hand. Yeah, it'd be almost like a dark steel relic or something, except no type line doesn't synergize with anything necessarily. Have you have you played with this card? I have not. I've tended to stay away from it. And maybe that's just because I'm a little more of a novice here, but like I am hesitant to essentially clutter up my deck with a bunch of dark steel relics. I've seen successful builds of Ironclad that are highly, uh, like in magic terms, they would be a very black mage kind of thing. You're, you're dealing damage to yourself. You're drawing lots of cards because you're using your life as a resource. Um, you get strength buffs, the, the weaker in health you get kind of like death shadow or something. So I think that's, uh, an archetype that I've played with the Ironclad. I've also seen a successful uh, blocking-based build, which would be based around taking a minimum amount of damage and then converting that into a big burst of, of attack damage. Um, but I have to admit, this is my least favorite character of the four, so I, I don't have much personal experience with it. Okay, I, I'm realizing as I'm talking to you that it's possible you haven't um, unlocked all of the Ironclad cards yet. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I think I've I've gotten most of them. All right. Um. So when when I look at this card, um, so it's a zero cost uh, card. Um, most of your cards tend to cost one in this game. Ironclad right. does have a lot of two cost cards, but if you have a um. If you have like a five card hand, um, generally you can play like three of them and then two of them you can't play. This right. being zero cost uh, means that it's it's like an extra card that you can play uh, that turn. So that's like the very level zero in that like it's going to be a kind of like marginal uh, increase to your damage output. Uh, obviously, this has a big relation to how much card draw you have in your deck. So the more card draw your deck has, the um, better zero-cost things uh, get because you're going to get right. more cards, but you don't have more energy. So free cards are great 
in those regards. And also, uh, if you have a lot of card draw, getting that dead card later um, is less of a drawback. Uh, another thing you mentioned was the strength scaling. So um, all the characters in Spire can gain strength. If you have, say, a card that does 10 damage for one energy uh, at your base strength, if you have 20 strength, that'll do 30 damage. So 10 plus your strength. Yeah. Um, there are cards that can make Ironclad have a lot of strength. Uh, and let, let's imagine for a second that you have like 50 strength. Um, at that point, uh, y- your, your one cost card, let's say it does 12, um, is going to do 62. And the zero cost seven damage thing now does 57. So if you compare like zero mana for 57 damage versus one mana for 62 damage, um, those are, when you get to that high amount of strength, the efficiency of being zero mana matters a lot more. Right. Yeah. Um, now th- these are all like kind of the basic things. Um, this card actually interacts with um, pretty much every power that Ironclad has. Uh, powers yes. which we haven't really covered are um, usually like um, when this do that type of statements. Um, so like when you exhaust or exile a card, um, you draw a card, that sort of thing. Yeah. When you lose HP you gain a mana or, or like when you damage yourself, you gain a mana or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, there is a power called evolve, which says whenever you draw a status card, which is like one of these dead cards, you uh-huh. draw a card or two cards. If evolve is upgraded, um, there is a card that says when you exhaust the card, you draw a card. Um, right. There is one that says when you exhaust the card, you gain block. And right. from those powers there, you can already see that uh, you could use this to um, slot into that big block deck that you're trying to do. You can use it uh, with two different powers to generate card draw. Um and and so like you you, you start off with the zero cost card that like marginally increases your output and has the drawback of this dazed but um it, it might be that based on how you've drawn built your deck that this dazed when you get it later will draw you four cards it'll like give you 12 block when it exhausts it'll um do all these other things for you and so that's kind of like the multiplicative layered interaction type of thing and i I think it's like it's a it's a very simple card who's um not every deck wants it it's not like objectively amazing um but in the right uh set of synergies it'll be like a huge workhorse in your deck and yeah um, I, I was watching a, a run from a streamer recently who um, 
they were they were playing against Slime Boss in Act One, and Slime Boss uh, on one of the earlier turns he puts five slimes into your deck, which are also Dark Steel Relic kind of cards. Yeah, and so he took uh, Fire Breathing, which um, is a power that deals AOE damage every time you draw a status card. Um, just as like a way to get through that fight. Um, and so it's kind of interesting to me that like the game itself gives you, uh, mechanical hooks, not only through, um, your own cards, but through like what your enemies are going to be doing. And I, I find that, um, uh, a lot of the like very basic cards in the game have these hooks to like draw you into, um, different kind of synergy clusters. And right. it almost happens, um, uh, it happens very organically where you, you take a card early because it's strong, because it like increases your raw output, um, relative to your starter deck. And we haven't really covered it, but your starter deck is, uh, yeah, really sucks. There's like, five basic attack cards, five basic defense cards and two like bonuses, but they're, they're all kind of bad. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of like by design is that, um, you know, in the beginning you're, you're taking kind of like any, any attack common that you can get your hands on, uh, just because you need damage to get through the fights. And then, all of these commons have um, different mechanical hooks for them. And then as the run evolves, you are incentivized differently to um, take different cards or take different relics. And part of the fun of the game is that uh, there, there's no like blanket rules about which cards are best, which strategies you um need to go for everything is extremely contextual and so um getting good at slay the spire is about um improving your decision making and your card evaluation based on the context um in a way that i feel like is very unique to this game it's what makes this game so compelling and and like i just can't put it down sometimes and it's because of that context and that synergy but i do think that the idea of synergy does translate to magic where we have these like i think ideally we have these weak game pieces that can be recontextualized into a stronger whole um and that's that's what synergy is at its most basic um but i think that's a useful tool for for cube designers is to like understand how synergy works. I would challenge that a little bit. I mean, I, I agree sure. with most of what you said. Um, it's the uh, weak part that you said. So uh, I guess in in magic, um, like the, the typical drafting process is that you, um, you take the strongest cards at the start. Um, and that, that's kind of similar in Spire is that you... You take um, the cards that are strongest for the setting. Uh, you need a lot of just attacks to get through Act One, um, but you, you you take them because they are strong, uh, 
relative to your starter deck. Um, and it, it's, it's those hooks that, uh, like kind of the incidental synergy hooks that it has that, right. um, allow you to build upon it from there. So I, I think in both Spire and Magic, um, it, it doesn't require that it's weak. It, it's almost, um, I think it's almost worse if it's weak cards that you're yeah. relying on there because that, that tends to lead to things being very uh, poisonous in a way. And I think one of the, the traps that new um, Spire players have is that they they want to think about um, decks as very like rigid, predefined archetypes and... If you go to like a Spire wiki, you'll see like that it's listed that the defect has like twelve different deck archetypes that I can. I I don't think that's really a very yeah. productive way to think about it. I think it's just um about like learning to realize like the the contextual like the synergistic power of cards given what you have. I agree. I use the term weak to describe how um, synergy could be the thing that make you that makes you pick um, a card like volt charge which is three mana uh, three damage and proliferate over a card like lightning strike which is just two mana for three damage um, so like these relatively weak cards become greater than the sum of their parts in the context of synergy all right. Well, I I, I want to pick up on this volt charge thing you said. Okay. I think yeah. there's something very interesting there. Um. So I mentioned earlier how there's like a, a very small card pool that each character in Spire is working with, and I I went on that like way too long yeah. rant about all the um not even all of them, a lot of the synergies that Reckless Charge had. Um. The yes. Spire card, not the Magic card. Um. Yeah. And. I think when it comes to cube design, um, I mean, so historically there's been like this singleton context and I feel like the more that um, I do like real design work, like I've been, I've been working on this, you know, uh, this actual game that's in on Steam out there uh, that it, it's if you're, if you're trying to design something it, it's much more important to um, have the right card that has uh, lots of synergistic hooks than yeah. have a bunch of different unique cards and if you look at any given magic set they you know the the number total number of commons and uncommons is like i don't know 100 cards or something um yeah and those cards are you know you have like one rare pack so those cards are like more than 90 percent of the card pool and they're they're chosen to do a lot of legwork and i think without um without synergy people don't really i, I don't think magic continues as a popular game like if you if right. you get those like learn to play magic 30 card decks like they're very they're very simple they're very easy for anyone to play 
But even those like have lots of little examples of like one plus one equals two point five, like little synergistic edges you can get by combining cards. And I think that um is what draws people into the game is like the the joy of feeling clever in that way that it's not just like the raw card that wins for you but it's you who combines them in a certain way to get that advantage yeah it's that feeling of discovery because you get hooked because because you you learn to recognize the rate of cards and pick the ones with the higher rate but then that unlocks this world of synergy and it leads to player discovery as as they start to combine these cards in novel ways that that do make one plus one equal three or whatever. Yeah, I will say when I um, started playing Spire and I would I would post my screenshots of my winning runs to the Riptide forums is that it gave me the feeling that like I was inventing strategies almost. And and as I've, I've played more, I've realized that's like totally not the case. Like, you know, all these tools are there very purposefully. The, the game itself is basically like a synergy playground. And you, yes. you put together these decks that like make you feel like a genius that you like found this combination of interactions to like do something really fun and clever. And I, I feel like at times Singleton uh, hampers your ability to do this. Let's talk about that a little bit because... I, I totally agree that the genius of Spire is that you just feel like you're the one who shows up at the Pro Tour with the sleeper deck that nobody else found when you stumble on a synergy in that game. And it feels so good. And so I'm not quite sure, and I'm, I'm hoping you can elaborate on how the singleton restriction that many cube designers adhere to is hampering. Uh, that same feeling in a magic cube let's let's take alt charge for example okay is, is that you know they, they could put any burn charge they they want to in, or is that mirrored and besieged or something they chose to put a burn card in there that was like highly synergistic um with what was going on um that there's lots of charge counters on things you can even proliferate poison counters or minus one minus one counters on your uh, opponent's creatures and i when when i mentioned reckless charge it's that you know we there could be in like spire like 50 more attacks and all these different things this one card has so much synergy potential that i think including more just different cards for the sake of diversity dilutes the amount of synergy in your card pool and um i don't know to give to give an example from my cube it, it used to be that i don't know i had all sorts of different um different like one mana cantrips in mm-hmm. in my cube and yeah. I, I really wanted i really had so much fun um Know, like playing with course of crucifix and doing these things that care about the top of your library and yeah. uh to me that's like one of the most fun interactions in magic and i said okay we're having a ton of brainstorms in my cube and yep. uh all of a sudden 
these top of the library things could actually function. And I have fun every time I get one of those decks put together. It's not like the only way to play blue green. It's not or blue green black or any of these things, but the fact right. that it is there um, increases like the uh, strategic diversity within my cube. It's um, right. you know getting more synergy connections out of the number of card slots that I had. Um, and I, I think if I would revert that, that it makes my cube less fun to play. I can see that for sure. And I recall another non-singleton uh, change you made in your list was for multiple grave crawlers, right? Uh, a big problem I had when I started playing cube is that um, I I never had fun playing aggro in people's cubes is that like yeah i don't know like people would be like oh here's this like uh green white beat down deck uh that works in this cube and i would play it and just be miserable the whole time whether i was winning or losing because there was so little like um agency as a player like it was efficiently statted dudes that turn sideways and I won or lost the game based on like the order of my draw pile. Um, And whether it was good or not relative to the cube was kind of irrelevant to me. And so what I really tried to do was um, make the aggro decks more fun to play. Um, So like green white for me became a bit of a landfall playground and mm-hmm. uh, black aggro relied a lot on very uh, powered up aristocrat stuff off of uh, multiple carrion feeders and grave crawlers. And over time, um, I did dial that back a lot. Uh, my current list has one grave crawler. Um, and I- I'm still playing with two carrion feeder because I think sack out- outlets are still hard to come by at a reasonable power level um but uh as far as like recursive toys like they've printed so many that you no longer need a grave crawler in multiples to like get right feeling of having like a synergistic deck Um, because you were doing that back in like the prehistoric days of yeah this was like 2013 was there even electricity i mean we we played by ago. candlelight most nights. Okay. Um, yeah. Sure. And, and I, I don't. I don't. I'm not going to claim that like quad grave crawler was like brilliant design by any means. I will say that uh, for many years it was a ton of fun, and uh, I I think it like gave uh, the drafters who played my cube something to look forward to and I, I saw a ton of different like aristocrat builds because i really like baked that into like the dna of my cube and you i don't know i mean you you see that in in magic sets they they tend to be about uh big unifying themes at a certain level that you know strict saving is about casting spells mirrodin is about artifacts you have enchantment blocks and all these things and 
part of yeah. that I think is for marketability, but I think part of that is because like on a mechanical level, it really, you know, magic is about too many things in total. And if you want to have a um, good draft environment, you need to make uh, like a cohesive uh, set of mechanics that work together. Yeah. So one of the things that I latched onto um, as you were describing your singleton breaks was this concept of like, I didn't have fun playing this deck and contrasting that to the discussion we've had about Spire. It's like, I don't, I don't know that correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when you say fun, um, I'm hearing you say, uh, synergy and a feeling of discovery and, decks that are not as fun, um, which is what we might say colloquially, at, if we were to translate that into design, it could mean there's little opportunity for discovery, for novelty, for synergy, the things that make us come back and go for run after run after run of Spire might be the things that are missing in that deck that you just don't like to play. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I don't know. I, I've I've played other Spire likes where it's um, like the the synergy is not as present. Where um, they they have say certain mechanics that are very I would call them siloed or I guess poisonous or parasitic is also a word you could use. But it's like um, you know this character has five cards that work with. A mechanic but it's really only these five cards so it's like you you commit to a very like rigid deck form yeah. a rigid mechanical form and with spire i feel like it's this big web of interconnective mechanical tissue and um a lot of that we have we haven't really talked about relics much because we've been um talking more about cards but um, I think relics do a lot in contextualizing how you build a deck. Like, to take a simple relic, um, Shuriken says if you play three attacks in a turn, you gain a strength for the rest of the fight. Um, yep. which does encourage more of like these zero cost attacks that I mentioned. And you can really, like, you'll have by the end of the run, like 20 something relics, and you can build into uh some of those but what spire has done um every card you have changes how you evaluate things every relic you have changes things it is a digital card game but i, I feel like they've shown a lot of restraint and that um the main thing they use the digitalness of it for is in uh streamlining computations like if you if you imagine like this being a board game, it would be miserable with like the amount of like arithmetic and tracking all the different yeah. relics and you have cards that grow in effectiveness over the course of a fight or a run. Like there's so much um kind of like paperwork you would have to do to get through it. Um and I I I think I don't know quite where I'm going, but I, I I find it kind of like 
I've thought about trying to make like a Spire type of um, like card game, like a physical card game before. And it, mm-hmm. it's hard to get past that uh, hurdle exactly of like, how do you um, have all these like relics or powers or things that give you some incremental benefit without bogging the whole game down and tracking yeah. those incremental benefits. That's another thing that is like baked into the starting resources of the game. Like because you start with 80 health and many of your, or, you know, thereabouts 80 or, or so, and your enemies often have like a hundred or 200 health. Um, that makes like the, in almost the entire number line from, from zero to a hundred relevant quantities to put on a card and contrast that to magic where you can really only do like one to three damage on a burn spell and keep it in a reasonable range. Unless you're restricted to only targeting creatures and you right. don't have stuffy doll in your environment. Or- <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying is like the knob on Slay the Spire turns way past what magic turns to. And so they're like, there's a lot of, there's a lot more gray area in the middle, which makes it impossible to track in paper. Um, which, which explains one of the reasons why magic has chosen a life total of 20 and a mana system of incrementing one a turn and so on. Um, just because it's the only thing that you can track in paper feasibly. Oh man, I, I had such a good like jump off that that I lost <laughs> once I said yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I remember one time I was like, uh, we were on a ski trip and I was like, at the end of the day, everyone was like chilling in the hotel room and I was with my wife's family and I was playing some Spire and I had my like 60 health character against uh donu deca which are like two 250 health characters and i remember uh my brother-in-law saying this is not a fair fight like just looking at the life totals and yeah i i guess that's like something that happens in magic too where people try to judge the score by the life total without um appreciating what else is going on yeah it's it's just so interesting to me how like the way the resources are allocated and given to players and the numbers on the cards kind of organically give rise to um, all of these synergistic hooks. The, it, it gives rise to the quantities and the qualities which make cards powerful and gives rise to that web of synergy that we love about games in general, magic, spire, any games. I think it's what keeps us returning to a game time and again. And it's all just like out of these mechanics, which is so weird to me. And so like delightful. It's kind of like weird to me, but also fitting that you you keep mentioning like the, the numbers, but I think, at its core, like Spire is a game that uh, makes math fun. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to? I, I, were, were you like a math kid growing up? Uh, yeah, I. Yep, I I think that's fair. 
you, 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 I, I sense some like hesitation in you. Well, <laughs> you know, answer. I was, I was like, you can't really describe yourself as an autodidact, because uh, it makes you sound arrogant. But I was, as a kid, I would just like learn anything I could, whether it was math or English or whatever. So, um, I was a math kid, but I was also like an everything kid, I guess. Yeah, I was definitely a math kid. I, I I know that when I was like, I think three years old, my you know, lots of kids had different toys. My my main toy was like a a jar of coins, and I I knew how much each coin was worth. And whenever we had like a down moment, I would dump out the coins and then count up how much they were worth which i i I don't think is a normal like three-year-old behavior Hmm. Um, maybe not yeah but it's certainly been like baked into my personality for a long time to uh love numbers in a certain way and uh, i hadn't really thought about it that way but you kept mentioning the the numbers on the cards and yeah i think there's something there I, i wonder because you, you said your your partner also plays Spire. Is she yes. into math or? She is into math by way of music theory. So yes and no. But then again, she's also like, she beat the game before I did. She beat the heart before I did in less time. Like it took me longer, more runs to beat the heart. So, you know, maybe I should be playing more music. Yeah, I think the um, you were you're talking earlier about like how things unfold and aspire on it. I think the the interesting um, tightrope you have to walk is that like you, you start off with this bad deck, and pretty much any card you add to it at the beginning um, will make the deck better, and it's it's attacks that you need at the beginning to beat the elites. Um, but if you overload on these kind of early game cards, you have a deck that's too like watered down to function well by the end game. Right. right. Um, and so it's really about like, you know, weaving through this, like getting strong without getting too early game strong and doing as much as you can without dying. And I, I feel like there's, um, the game is split up into like four acts, basically three acts. There's a bonus one at the end, but, uh, there's always this like interesting point, um, where at the start of act two, you normally feel awful. Like your deck yep. is very like underprepared for the enemies that you're facing, which are much tougher than the act one enemies. And you're usually like building towards something, but you're not really quite there yet. And often you'll have in runs like this kind of turning point where your your deck has specific needs that you feel as you're playing the fights. And if you address them, like it's off to the races and you start like really getting strong. And there's other runs where you just die there. But yeah, like there's 
there's an interesting like the the threat of death is always there and like the the pursuit of getting strong amongst this i feel is very rewarding mm-hmm. as far as how spire has this like spinal tap to my reward center in my brain part of it is discovering those synergies part of it is simply that like visceral pleasure of like looting things and earning power-ups and like leveling up. And I just love that feeling. Um, and I, I, I just can't stop chasing it. Now, this is something that I talked a bit with uh, Andy and Anthony when I was on last time about, um, I feel like Spire, they, they, they've, they've patched it over time. It's, it's become more, more and more stable it's really been a long time since they made um two major changes to the game and people continue to play it continue to love it because i feel like um you know as far as things that we have available to us i think it's like as close to a perfectly designed card game as i can think of Mm -hmm. and you know, it's okay being in this stable place. I I have some gripes with the game. Uh, I'm sure that if the developers ever make Aspire 2, that it'll have learned from some of the uh, things that I think Spire 1 didn't quite do as well. Um, but it's, it's more or less like a finished product now. Uh, yeah. Whereas magic and to a lesser extent cubes are kind of on this constant carousel of new content and i i asked andy and anthony if like if we should be kind of like pursuing perfection in a way like that we uh you know finish our cube designs or i sometimes feel like this like need for newness is like taking away from the pursuit of perfection to the extent that you can optimize your cube without updating it um, with new cards. If you can optimize it in that space, in that kind of local space and your cube gets meaningfully closer to your design goals. Um, You might not be opt. uh, um, You might not be updating it, in the way that we cube designers typically say, you know, we, we usually say update to mean I, I dropped a hundred dollars on modern horizons two and have changed everything about the list. So you can still be updating it, but making these smaller local like optimization changes that are still creating an environment that's better for your goals. It's just not large scale. It's not, um, a new set in the way that Neon Kamigawa is going to be a new set compared to Vow compared to Midnight Hunt. Um, it's a new set because it's closer to your design goal, even though the card pool maybe hasn't changed much or doesn't use new cards. What are you working on these days? Well, um, I'm I'm continuing to kind of think about, I've, I've really enjoyed a, uh, high fixing density, high multicolor spell, very low curve environment. 
And so I'm trying to optimize in that space, um, breaking singleton on cards like Faithless Looting, like um, Fetch Lands, like Curd Ape, uh, to try and cultivate those like very fast, decision-dense games that I personally enjoy. So that's that's what I'm doing when I'm not kind of scrubbing out on Slay the Spire runs. I do feel like the um, high fixing density has kind of like been catching on, can I say? Yeah, I. if by catching on you mean now Andy is slowly adding more fixing lands to the Bun Magic Cube, um, which is really my only metric for success, then yeah, I, I think I think it's catching on. Uh, there, there's always like that voice in my head of like, you know, what are the community's like expectations and definitions of a cube that I I feel like uh, is kind of like detrimental in a way and uh, something that we we shouldn't necessarily like let speak to us so much and and when i've been doing design work for like other games like non-cube stuff for uh, i've been doing some feedback and testing for rogue book which is a something in the spire genre is that i i find it much like more liberating to be able to just like fully pursue what i think is good design without these other kind of cultural constraints in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I I just feel like this concept that every draft needs to be 360 unique cards kind of comes from, I I don't know where it comes from. I I don't see that sort of stuff in uh, game design at large. And uh, in the work that I've been doing, um, you know, there there was a card that we came up with for uh, some upcoming DLC that really kind of like struck the right note in terms of like uh, what we wanted the what we needed the card to be doing, and and so it, it's put at common because it's a fun card, and you you will see it a lot in the game. Uh, it's powerful, but. Uh, fun and interesting to play with and i don't think that if a spire character or something had like 400 cards that it would be a better design um yeah and i i I don't want to be such a like a a one note uh pony but i i feel like um i don't know when you when you get outside of like cube circles and you um do some like work or looking into like actual design projects that it's it's a bit um i i I don't know i i don't know how things became so like insular and tribal and like uh you know why why people care so much about upholding some arbitrary design structures from a long time ago and i i don't really see how it's productive i I guess it's uh 
profitable for wizards that they have these cubes that they can march out and have people play, but uh, I, I, I don't see the benefit of like if, if the most fun thing you can design happens to be singleton, then that's fine, but I, I don't see the benefit of like an a priori uh, definition yeah. in that way. There's like two competing directives, which is like in in the Slay the Spire like spike mentality, the more consistent your deck is, the I I feel the stronger it is. Um and so like a deck of five cards or whatever, if it's doing something powerful consistently, then you see your entire deck every turn and you're able to do that powerful thing every turn, which is great. Apply that to cube design and it's like wait, the the fewer unique designs I have in the cube, the more consistent the synergies I want will be. Um, you know, which which is an argument for for less singleton, for more duplicate effects. But then at the same time, um, Discord member and Riptide Lab member Feld had this uh, quote a couple weeks ago that has stuck with me where if you break singleton on a card and include duplicates, it increases the chances that that card gets taken for granted. Um, so, so like Tarmogoyf is historically important, um, like exciting, powerful card, right? And there are no green two drops that are in the same league in terms of power and toughness per mana. Right. So like you could, you could say I'll break singleton on this, play five Tarmogoyfs. They all interact with the graveyard. It'll make graveyard decks, um, kind of coalesce around that delirium adjacent strategy. And maybe that's your goal, but I don't even also hate that, make, to be honest. I, I personally love the gameplay. I play as many delirium cards as I can find. Well, it also but, makes like graveyard hate more interesting, and like you yeah. you create a mechanical identity there. And I don't know, maybe sometime you're in like green red faithless looting stuff that powers up your goifs, or you have some like instant speed things that mill yourself that can like serve as combat tricks to make goif stronger. Scour or whatever. Yeah, yeah. like there, there's a lot that and be there um i i I don't i don't i I won't say off the top of my head that that's a bad idea no but i guess the risk is that tarmogoy ceases to feel special uh for your drafters maybe i mean my usual play group isn't the kind of uh player who has played with tarmogoy extensively or even has ever you know, owned a Tarmogoyf. And so like, it's special to open that, to play it, to build your deck around it. And if there's five of them, I don't, I don't know that that same emotional experience is captured. Yeah. I mean, so it, there's a trade off, right? Because yeah. like as much as I want to, um, treat, uh, you know, like when, when I'm trying to think about things, often I try to treat cube as like, a, a, entirely detached from, the game of magic but that's not how anyone actually interfaces it when they play it um 
and certainly like for me i enjoy at some level uh playing with cards that were important cards when i was most active in magic like when i was playing standard and that sort of thing so yeah i'm very attached to like zendikar cards um yeah and like by the same token i my very first deck was this like naya zoo deck i think it was loosely based off the ajani vengeant dual deck and so who's my favorite planeswalker it's ajani vengeant and my favorite one drop is wild and the cattle and it's just always going to be that way so yeah yeah we can't we can't really escape the emotional experience i mean i like um step links more than the red step links yeah you know yeah that's not logical (laughs) yeah well um thanks for talking with me i've I've really enjoyed it yeah i Um, uh, look forward to you leveling up inspire me too. I, I feel like I've really uh, learned some things. I think that might be um, a great like conclusion to this conversation. Like, if if there are three takeaways from from this episode, they should be um, that your emotions as you as you come back to a game that you enjoy should signal something about the strength of that design. Uh, the second in, would be that the numbers and the resources in a game help determine what cards are or are not powerful. And then the third, which you've articulated eloquently, is that the expectations of the cube community that, or, or the historical expectations surrounding cube might not be ideal for every individual cube designer now thank you for listening to this episode of lucky paper radio all our music is produced by dj james nasty all the magic cards are produced by wizards of the coast slay the spire is made by mega crit games and the talking is done by me and my friend jason waddell well said. Um, I, 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 you can you can cut that out if you like listen back and you decide that this is like you know one rant too many from me. Sometimes if you get these kind of complex infinite decks where it's like a lot of clicking to make it go infinite, like it's yeah. very fun the first time, and then after that it's like office work. So <laughs> yeah. There, there, yeah. there have been runs where I, I just QED'd them and I was like, I have demonstrated an infinite. I'm going to drop this run because I don't feel like doing all this clicking anymore. Yeah.